that was how to make the elixir of life and holy grail. Next up. I'm a mortal, your source for all things immortal. Hi, my name is Sigurd Grossman. I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Waterloo, and I specialize in not many things, but I am interested in a lot of things, and one of them is wisdom and how societies change. Thank you so much for coming on, Igor. And our podcast is called I'm Immortal, a little bit of a play on the words immortal. So as we ask all of our guests, what does the word immortal or immortality mean to you? Ah, uh, that's a good question. It's a utopian ideal uh, mixed with fear of uncertainty and change. And what I mean by that is that we constantly change, including our bodies, and memory is reconstructive. And consequently, I'm not sure if this is really something we can have, the sense of true immortality, because uh, imagine that you are not the same person a year from now than you are today, because your body fully regenerated and I, anything that you had in you it's not the same as you had a year ago. And your memory is fallible. And because it's reconstructive, you may not remember things exactly as they happened. Um, so what is immortality, a utopian ideal? So I'm guessing it's something, do you possibly wish for it? Or do you think it comes with too many problems? Well, I guess that's a topic of this episode. I do wish for, a, I think you, you asked me this question when you, in, in the set of questions you sent to me earlier. Um, and uh, it's interesting that even though I, I'm fairly skeptical of the notion of immortality and the consequences, the societal consequences that it brings with it, I'm at the same time incredibly egoistic and do wish some form of immortality, but for uh, somewhat odd reasons. And I, when I started thinking about it, my reason for immortality was that I'm uh, kind of a little bit obsessed with knowledge <laughs> and uh, just learning how things change and like envisioning what will the planet look like or what will mm. just like imagining I'm the, I'm like the silver surfer from, you know, from the Marvel uh, comics yeah. that travels between the planets and imagines like w what would be the future after Earth, for instance. And so those type of things somehow exciting to me even though they may be really frightening from but uh, that would be one reason to have immortality to imagine well will we blow each other up or not but at the same time it's a scary thought and there are a lot of negative potentially negative side effects of uh, the mass scale immortality or longevity in society so we'll talk about that mm. okay so let's rewind a bit and uh get a little bit more about you, Igor. Could you give the audience a brief description about your journey to your current expertise and where you are today? Oh, gosh. Um, so what do you mean? Well, anything like, uh, how, <laughs> how did you get where you are? What's your education? Did it stem from a childhood obsession with something? How did you get here? As with most people, I am the victim of serendipity and uh, a lot of things that just happened in a particular moment in time, in a particular context, meeting particular people. And uh, yeah, sure, there are certain predispositions that I probably had. I've often been wondering about the human mind and how we think and how we try to make sense of the world and how we judge each other. Maybe I was more predisposed to that. And as far as I remember, I was to some extent. But who isn't when they're young? 
maybe those who are sort of most well off and most social and are not sort of minorities uh, and uh, and I was a minority for as long as I can remember uh, ethnic minority or sort of like cultural minority I think those of us who are from sort of like ethnically diverse background probably do wonder when we're children why do other people think differently than us and uh, so in that sense, maybe I was not as unusual as I thought. A lot of the stuff that led to my journey, as you would call it, uh, was serendipitous, uh, where I met people who were admirable or there was particular circumstance that led to another thing. And uh, consequently, I ended up um, in academia and deciding how societies change and how people make good judgments. Thank you for sharing your background, yeah. I guess on the idea, because you've had a lot more academic experience than we have had. We're still in our undergrad uh, years. And mm -hmm. one thing we've heard a lot of, uh, you're a little bit older than us, I'll, I'll say that. But a lot of times when we talk to older people, they always have this uh, notion that uh, time's slipping away. Time used to go so much slower when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering, given your background, because you've had a lot of experiences. I don't know if you've experienced the same thing, but um, is there a reason that is there a reason why people often complain about this? There is something psychological about the sense of uh, uh, misunderstanding the personal change in yourself and the change in the world. And uh, that is an interesting dynamic. My uh, close colleague and collaborator, uh, Richard Eibark at the University of Waterloo has studied that as well as many others, where you often uh, misunderstand. You think like, oh, these young people, they are so different now, but back in my day, and uh, you think that the world is changing, but it's in reality, you often just don't see the changes that you're going through. So that's part of it. I mean, you know, like people just mature, get older and uh, start perceiving the world somewhat differently for all sorts of reasons. Some of them may be sociological, not even uh, has nothing to do with, uh, with biology. Uh, but at the same time, um, I have heard that before. Personally, maybe I'm not, uh, at that stage yet, or maybe I'm just mindful of all these additional biases. So I haven't experienced this sense of things becoming faster. Uh, if anything, you know, as somebody who grew up during the fall of the Soviet Union and uh, then, you know, the, the rapid changes in the 90s and the beginning of internet and everything, it seemed to me that things were pretty fast back then as well. Uh, you know, like in the beginning of the 90s in uh, Eastern Europe, one day you are just nobody, second day you are a billionaire. Those things happen, not to me, unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, or maybe fortunately, because a lot of those people either ended up in prison or dead. Mm. Uh, so that's a separate story. But, uh, you know, I don't think uh, one can really say that uh, the, the sense of, re of change of psychological and societal changes always mediated through subjective experience. And it's really hard to say whether things are faster now than they were before. I think part of it is really um, based on your individual background as potentially also aging. And we'll get to that in a second. So this is a follow-up then because so far we've only interviewed one other uh, person in the realm of psychology, um, cogn cognitions, all of that area. And one thing mm -hmm. we did ask them was, like, our framework here might be wrong, but in terms of what we've understood from that interview, was that part of the passing of time is based on how many memories you have of a certain time period. Mm -hmm. 
and I think his reasoning then was because you might have more novel experiences when you're younger, meaning that you feel like there's a lot more events going on, which is why time might feel slower. But then we also were thinking, well, if you have a finite memory, if you had a very long lifespan, like, I guess, how does the finite sense of memory deal with the fact that you only have that certain memories you remember more often? Like, is that going to affect which years feel longer? Like, will 100 years start to feel like mm -hmm. 10 years, feel like maybe a one year eventually if you live thousands of years long? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So what uh, this colleague was talking about is the so-called uh, reminiscence bump. Uh, where you think about your autobiographical experience about the past, the particular periods in your life are much more salient than other periods, and often also the earlier periods in your life. Just recently, I read an autobiography of my uh, former mentor, Richard Nisbet, uh, just published, uh, Thinking. If you're interested in thinking, uh, check it out. It's just coming out this year. And uh, what's remarkable about, about that autobiography is that, uh, like this reminiscence bump, the first part of the book, reads oddly different from the second part of the book. And how so? Well, it reads like a novel. And you kind of really en envision yourself being that floating in the river with him or going through his experiences. And the second part of the book, because like this dry academic treatise, which is interesting, and uh, I found it really stimulating, but a very different narrative style. And it took me a while to think about what could be the reason for that, because surely more recent findings and research and journeys of a person should be at least as interesting, if not more interesting. But often because of this reminiscence bump, uh, we often refer to the earlier periods as more salient in our memory. Um, whether this will be different for a person who would live longer? Um, well, to some extent, yes. Um, but there's an interaction between the biological factors and memory, you know, like uh, it's decaying. Uh, a lot of things are decaying. And the more they, they're in the past, the more reconstructive they become, the more layers of an onion you add over time, uh, reconstructed again and again and again, reinterpreted more and more and more. Um, but at the same time, you know, maybe you will not decay as much if you if you can fix that problem. Uh, that if you have some kind of almost like an objective uh, external device where you would uh, biohack and augment your memory through external storage, uh, then uh, arguably then that will be preserved, and you will not have a problem with thinking about some events in your life as more salient than others. If you think about like the Black Mirror episode, in which is kind of like externally store your memories, oh, and I yes. believe there was one. Well, would that lead then to destruction of the reminiscence bumps? Possibly. But at the same time, it can, as the Black Mirror episode has shown, have other consequences, societal consequences. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to jump ship a little bit and ask you this question. In mm -hmm. theory, if we have an ageist world, if we're able to store memories, whatever the situation may be, how does the value of life change? Does a longer life diminish life's meaning or does it increase death's significance? Does death become a big taboo? Mm. It's not sure. It's a lot of hypotheticals. I'm not a specialist on this. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think? What do I think? <laughs> Have the question turn on me. Um, I can definitely see, you know, if life is immortal, if you're able to live forever, death would be a much more drastic thing because, oh, you have the opportunity to not die dying would all of a sudden have much more value. Like people would be more scared of it. Uh, interesting. 
interesting. I mean, I could also create a contra narrative. And again, that has been featured either in Black Mirror or many other sort of science fiction uh, uh, scenarios where a person who lived for a very, very long time uh, is longing for escaping the, uh, the heaviness of life. Uh, because all the other people that they have known are gone and uh, the social environment and experiences uh, that they had are only stored in their head and they just like, there's nothing. Because, you know, like um, many cases, it's not just about our memories. It's not just about us. It's about our social ecology that we are surrounded with. And if that is changing and there's nobody else left, that becomes a heavy burden. So I guess the question then becomes, are you in a community of equal sort of like extremely long living beings? I guess there we get, go into the direction of some kind of vampire mm. clan uh, that has been living forever. Or are you a loner uh, who like Wolverine uh, mm-hmm. in the comics uh, is sort of like lives almost forever, but like and sees uh, lovers and uh, children die before their eyes. That would be a miserable experience for many people. I'm not sure they would want to have that. Mm-hmm. So would you say that the social experience and the people around you is what determines whether death is good or bad with immortality? Arguably, yes. But of course, that also is cons- uh, complicated. Of course. Because yeah. uh, the social uh, can have both the positive and the negative. I mean, the social within your group creates an outgroup distinction to those who are not uh, living as long. And there you have a conflict brewing and um, with possibly quite dramatic consequences. Okay, so, well, so going to a topic that I'm sure you, you're far more familiar with, what we talked about so far has been very hypothetical. Mm-hmm. But on the idea of culture, I've seen you published a few academic articles, and a lot of them have been on the topic of this uh, idea of individualism and collectivism. Mm-hmm. Before we go into uh, those a little bit more, could you just briefly define those for our listeners? That's a good question. How do you define individualism and collectivism? Uh, There are many different perspectives on that. Sometimes you can think of individualism just as a form of egocentrism. But really what it's about is like pursuit of independence, uh, sort of sense of individual mastery, a sense of an endorsement of achievement-oriented values that you can do it. It's in your hands, the destiny. You are the captain of the ship that is sailing through the world and you can conquer anything that you want. So that type of uh, very sort of uh, American, I would say, ethos of how to live uh, your life. And a collectivism, on the other hand, uh, is more about uh, family. It's about a sense of interdependence, uh, relational interdependence to other people. It's about the sense of community and uh, to some extent obligation uh, to others where you realize that you are constrained uh, by your relationships. You're constrained by what other people expect from you. Now, most of us uh, have moments in our lives when we are uh, probably more likely to be tempted by one or another. I don't think there is somebody who is purely individualist. I mean, maybe some kind of a complete egotist uh, or purely collectivist, uh, unless it's uh, there would be like a slave to other people's uh, passions. Um, so in different situations, we have one or another, or maybe a little bit of both. But there are some cultural differences in what uh, uh, countries uh, uh, on sort of our cultures 
uh, our parents teach us more? Are they uh, teaching us to focus more on ourselves and how independent we are and how unique we are in our choices? Or are they focusing us to teach, uh, uh, focusing us to focus more on the collective duties on our obligations, uh, sense of family and so on? Uh, so that's about the definition, but there are different definitions uh, in uh, sociology versus psychology. And even in psychology, uh, there's actually no concrete agreement. Often the term individualism or collectivism is used to, to mean many, many different things. So I appreciate you asking this question. Mm -hmm. So a quick question, this might be my ignorance that causes me to ask this question, but is it natural for humans to choose mm -hmm. one or the other, like individualism or collectivism? Mm. So the related terms to this uh, would be um, self-interested goals and um, uh, collective goals. And, um, you know, I think it's a false dichotomy to say, is it, is it natural for people to choose uh, self-protection versus uh, some kind of cooperation, right? Uh, a group relation, because we ultimately need both. Uh, you cannot be just a slave to the group unless you're a slave and... Fortunately, we don't have that many slaves anymore uh, around the world. Um, and uh, you cannot just survive over time like evolutionary you, um, if you were uh, just focusing on yourself. You need this community in order to cooperate. You're much more efficient as a, as a species. We are much more efficient if we work in groups. So for me, it's not a dichotomy, uh, but, it, it, but there is sometimes a tension and it's about figuring out to what extent do you want to focus on one versus another. Hmm. Okay, well, because earlier we talked about how, you know, if you did want to have life extension, it's probably more of a, a global movement um, rather than some single individual wanting it all for themselves. Right. Because that would be torture. But I'm thinking because on the very surface level, wanting to live longer seems like a very individualistic ego narcissistic sort of choice but right. right if let's say there was life extension therapy available to a lot of people or even everybody in the world do you imagine that would promote collectivism or would it still be i don't know maybe promote more individualistic societies to arise if we had more people who live longer yeah like i'm thinking if if life extension therapy was available as possibly a choice for everybody Mm. It's an interesting hypothetical again, because uh, it's almost implausible. I mean, this type of technology is always like uh, creating stratification in the in the society, right? So it just like promotes inequality, if you want. But let's see. So yeah, if the whole society as a whole has an opportunity to increase in life, ex there's an increase in life expectancy by, let's say, one standard deviation, which is a lot. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I could imagine that it could lead to greater interconnectedness because you will have greater awareness of changes and greater uh, opportunity to connect to other people and to see the, um, be aware of the fragility of the planet that you need to keep longer because it's kind of self-serving uh, given that you live longer. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it's not a simple cause effect type of thing, right? So uh, we already talked about individualism, collectivism, and this is kind of like self-protective goals. You focus on uniqueness versus focus on community. It's not a simple dichotomy. It's not just like one or another. In different situations, you may want to prioritize one or another, but often you need both to effective um, survival and um, enjoyment uh, on this planet.
So here, for instance, one interesting thing is that, for instance, individualists uh, often tend to be also quite altruistic just by looking at the it's not true that uh, if you're an individualist, you would right away uh, be just absolutely selfish. Uh, often it's the individualists who donate more to the common good, including the organ donations in the United States. So I guess I can't really answer this question uh, in a straightforward fashion because of no single sort of cause-effect relationship between the longevity and average life expectancy on the one hand and this focus on the self versus the community or that. on the other hand. I would hope that, that by increasing the longevity in the society overall, we will also be more mindful of incorporating the experiences of these people who had more experiences and increase this longevity not at the expense of equality. And so that this longevity would be indeed provided equally to everybody in the society. But I am also very that that's very unlikely mm-hmm. i'm gonna again jump ship once again <laughs> so we know that longer lives they cause slower generational turnover because like even today's age people are you know giving birth to children right. later and later just because they have the career they have other things to do so do you think that this idea of reproducing later in life especially with longer lives if you're living till 130 why have your child at 30 why not have it at 50 do you think this will have effects mm-hmm. on the rate of cultural change and psychological tendencies of society? Mm, possibly. I mean, it's hard to think uh, whether people would slow down in the generation of cultural change. I don't think so. I think that could be independent of that. Uh, but there will probably be a dramatic drop in fertility. I can imagine that. Uh, just because there will be more people. And in fact, we have some evidence that, that uh, the more, the denser the population, uh, the higher the likelihood that subsequently you experience drop in fertility. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's that. Um, it may also be gender specific. Uh, the effects may be gender specific, depending on this, if the society is more patriarchal or matriarchal and how gender equal it is uh, there may be i mean i don't know you would just want to speculate there could be may, uh, more opportunities for women to select in patriarchal so- societies because now they have the whole range um, but uh, again like longevity is not the same type as fertility will so will the fertility rate increase too that's not a question and that's another sort of un- unknown, right? Because you can live longer, but maybe you're still, you'll only uh, be able to uh, have uh, children until the same age of, let's say, may- maybe until 40, until 45, maybe until 50, right? With the newest technology. But uh, that has consequences. And that it impacts women differently from men. That, to some extent, could promote in- gender inequality even further. Finally, I mean, one important factor here uh, for how this would impact the society as a whole is that uh, our financial and social support systems are built in such a way that we rely on younger people to support the older uh, who are frail and not able to support themselves. So, you know, the rental, um, the retirement fund system depends on the contribution uh, of the larger pool of young adults. The more older adults we have who are retired, uh, the 
harder and less sustainable it becomes to fill this retirement fund. That's a problem that we're already facing in Canada, uh, which is why we have more, we open doors for more immigrants in order to support our older populations and as well as other countries, including Japan, Germany, and so on. And it's just like the future where we are going because our average age is becoming older and older, uh, is getting older and older. And so consequently, um, I think, uh, what you could expect is that there will be so it, to some extent the longevity question depends on well will these people then retire and continue living the next 50 years uh, just like uh, enjoying their life or will they continue working will they continue to be in the workforce until they're 100, 100 uh, because they live until 150 or something um, those are all very sort of important questions with direct implications for the relationships between younger and older adults, because you can imagine like your generation would not be very happy if they know that they're on the hook for paying for um, a double of the older generation who are all retired, uh, or that there will be just like no retirement fund left for you when you get older, because uh, there are even fewer younger adults who would be supporting you. So. Um, if that is the case, then the uh, relationship between the generations will be worsened. Uh, but as I said, it to some extent depends on uh, whether longevity comes with uh, the uh, requirement to continue working longer or not. Hmm. Okay. Well, this makes me think because you mentioned population density and, and typically as far as i know it just means more people right yes we're not saying like a bigger like more young people more older people but i realized for our question we because there are possibilities where when we talk about life extension maybe it just means our spectrum of people living goes from one to 200 right mm -hmm. but in another scenario it could be that everybody just no longer ages and is stuck at um i don't know let's say like 25 25 people say is a good age right hopefully so in that case, in, or in the latter case of if everyone was young forever, then you would avoid mm -hmm. all those problems you talked about in terms of retirement funds and whatnot. And maybe people would work longer. Okay. I'm not sure. But do you see it, mm -hmm. that there could be any new issues that come up if everybody is, I guess, uh, no longer biologically aging and staying young forever? Well, I mean, the, the, the simple consequences will never have children again. Uh, children will become uh, an incredibly rare commodity, a luxury that is only afforded to the very few who uh, can somehow uh, circumvent the system or pay incredible amount of mo money. Or there will be a lottery for having children only in case somebody accidentally passes uh, away or dies due to some kind of a horrible accident, then another person can then have children. Um, because otherwise, uh, the overpopulation of the planet uh, would lead to um, inability uh, to sustain the ecology that we live in. So that would be my answer. I mean, uh, alter alternatively, we will just like reach for the stars, which we're trying already, and mm -hmm. say, "Oh, people live forever." So uh, let's put some of these people on spaceships and uh, spaceships, and uh, hope that they will reach some kind of a, a further destination. Uh, millions of light years from here where uh, they can fulfill their future but unfortunately you have uh, there's no space for you on earth i'm sorry uh, you can't stay here anymore we're full but good luck do you want to have children that spaceship is for you mm. yeah not on earth uh, at least right <laughs> yeah 
And that's a very likely scenario if everybody's like 25. I have a little bit of a hypothetical question to follow up this. So say by some miracle or scientific advancement, we are able to reverse aging or live forever today in current day. Mm -hmm. Do you think there will be, I mean, mass panic? Would there be a huge culture change? Is there anything drastic that might happen that we might not foresee? Uh, beyond what we just discussed? or uh, Definitely uh, beyond what we just discussed, yeah. Well, if everything is just static in terms of no aging, no worry about mortality, I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting hypothetical. What do you think? Do I think. I definitely see a lot of people quitting their jobs, at least, if they know they're living forever. There's always more time to do more things. But, I mean, so living forever depends on having food or not. That's true, yeah. Or you're like a vampire. So like just like, it, again, it, it depends on the definition and what technology can do. Are we able to survive without food? Are we invulnerable? <laughs> I guess those are all questions to add on to that. Right. Yeah, because yeah, like, I mean, there's still socioeconomic consequences. Mm-hmm. And quitting the job is probably not an option. I mean, so, so I mean, like your, your scenario is like quitting the job means that basically the first thing that will happen is a civil war. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because somebody has to do the job. Yeah, yeah we need people to work. Yeah. Uh, and so maybe then uh, after realizing that very quickly, everybody will just continue doing what they're doing. But it's it's hard to answer this question because it's such an implausible scenario. That's true. Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe people will not even realize that. I mean, who knows? What will happen if I am not aging? Well, first of all, I'll probably not know this is for the first five years. Uh, and then only then people start wondering, why is it that nothing actually changes? And then somebody will come up with the realization that the uh, cells are not aging. After that, people start thinking about how should we be shaping our governments and our social support systems and so on and so forth. Um, uh, certainly the first consequence will be, can we have children? Um, and that will lead to a civil war in its own right. Okay, so we have asked a lot of hypothetical questions so far, Igor, okay. and I have one that I hope there's a little bit more evidence for. Okay. Um, but one of them, yeah, one question was on the adoption of technologies. And I know this is kind of hard to answer because across time, the rate of technological development changes mm-hmm. and you can't really compare like a phone 20 years ago to like a phone now, let alone all across human history, all the developments. Mm-hmm. But I was wondering if there was any evidence about certain cultures whether they're looking at the uh, individualism collectivism level or if there's any other factors on the mass adoption of certain technologies or therapies that's an interesting question i'm not aware of uh, the role of this kind of like broad cultural dimensions like individualism collectivism Uh, i mean anecdotally of course the type of technologies that's being adapted and the way how they're being adapted are influenced by the sort of like emphasis on uniqueness Emphasis on pragmatism, having the same ecosystem as in WeChat, right? Like the whole thing is just WeChat instead of uh, different unique apps that you can customly select by yourself. So that has, of course, implications, what kind of technology will get advanced and how it will get advanced. Other than that, that's not my area of expertise, unfortunately. Oh, okay. That's all right. Yeah, this is one I wasn't sure if there was an answer for. But what area of your expertise that we are aware of is wisdom. And I think you've discussed this on your podcast on wisdom. I think it was episode one or two about aging and wisdom. And I've heard you say like the so there's an adage, something about like with age comes wisdom, something like along the lines of that, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Because I'm assuming by age, 
we don't actually mean age. Do we actually mean time or is there some implication of age in terms of wisdom as well? Yeah, it's an interesting uh, question. What does age mean? Um, age often stands for something else, as you just pointed out. Uh, it's uh, like an empty variable. There's a proxy. Uh, and uh, it's interesting that the same proxies used to mean very different things because sometimes age means biological aging, decline. You say age, it's just, he's just older. And by that, you mean something entirely different. Um, sometimes age means the generations or like particular culture that you grew up with, you know, in the 60s or in the 70s, in the 80s or in the 90s or 2000s. And you add some kind of weird labels to your Gen X versus whatever, iPhone generation. Uh, I find those silly, but uh, they still convey the message that uh, what you mean by age is uh, when you say boomer, uh, is a particular cultural orientation, a particular cultural experience. And obviously those cultures differ a little bit and they probably play a role. Uh, whether they, it's, that's all there is to, you know, to the human, it's a different story. Um, and sometimes when you say aging, you mean experience, you mean life experience. Um, and there it becomes tricky because, you know, as I mentioned, uh, memory is reconstructive. So when you say, well, this person has so many life experiences, can recall so many anecdotes and stories from their youth, it's uh, all beautiful, but you know, those are reconstructed stories and they are often uh, being intermixed with new experiences and like that adds sort of new flavors to them, new interpretations to them and so on. So from that sense, from that perspective, that experience may not necessarily be adaptive all the time. And uh, even though we would want to have a lot of life experiences, most people do one way or another. That's why some of us are seeking out and venturing into the world. Uh, others are reading books and, um, and some do PhDs like myself uh, or get PhDs like myself. Um, it's not a guarantee that you will be wiser because the experience has to match particular contexts particular culture, those cultures change. And consequently, there is always a fear that experience may be inadequate or not properly adjusted. So does aging bring wisdom? Uh, the, the question is really odd if you think about this question, what is aging in the first place? And I already outlined three different posi positions, right? Do cultures vary in wisdom? Probably. Right, there are some cultures that may be emphasizing some features that may be more focusing on, uh, you know, like interrelationships and figuring ways to navigate challenging situations than others, uh, without doubt. Do experiences automatically produce wisdom? Probably not. Does biological aging somehow inhibit or promote wisdom? That question is kind of really strange if you think about it a bit more. Uh, because uh, there's certainly a lot of mediating factors and inhibiting factors uh, that may be in the way. Um, so this is just to say that the answer to the question, does wisdom come with age, is complicated. And in fact, empirical evidence on this is very mixed. And uh, the problematic part is that there is actually no, absolutely none, longitudinal evidence that you need to, to be able to trace the same people over time to compare their responses when they were younger than when they are older. 
and control at the same time for this kind of cultural effects. Because otherwise, if you just compare young adults to old adults, you never know, is this really this kind of experiential aging of people gathering experiences, biological maturation, or is this nothing else than just people from different eras that you compare to each other, which is apples and oranges comparison. Mm. Okay, you briefly touched on this, but just for the audience and myself even, uh, mm-hmm. what's the difference between knowledge, wisdom, and intelligence? Because I know a lot of people will, you know, attune the two together. Like wisdom and knowledge right. are one thing, which I I don't believe them to be the same. Um, I mean, the least. knowledge is a complex term too, and intelligence can be a complex term. Uh, the way how we typically use knowledge, we mean just like aggregation of you know, like you go to Wikipedia and you read up a bunch of articles and. Uh, then you have a lot of knowledge, but uh, uh, the tricky part is like, how do you apply it in different situations? And uh, do you know how to retrieve this knowledge and uh, apply it in such a way that is most effective uh, for your well-being and for well-being of the people around you? Well, if you do, that's probably closer to wisdom. If you just have a lot of, if you just read a lot of Wikipedia articles, that's just knowledge. What about the intelligence? Well. That's tricky because uh, some people define intelligence and they think the lay understanding of intelligence is like very complex. I mean, sometimes we, I think uh, when we say, well, this is smart or this is wise, sometimes those things can overlap and we just use them to say that, oh, this was good. Post talk, of course, because only after the fact, we know if it was good. And that, of course, is very contextual, situation specific, you know, culture specific and so on. Like who was wise? Was was Mao wise? Was Churchill wise? Was uh, uh, some other favorite person whom you would consider either as a admirable or dictator wise? I don't know. Uh, it depends on whom you ask. And same thing with smart and intelligent. So those two can overlap. Um, right now in our culture in, in Canada, uh, we view intelligence uh, in a fairly narrow sense. Uh, so you can view intelligence as just like a, a general adaptation to living well. And if that is your definition of intelligence and survival of your group, if that's your definition of intelligence, that's actually closer to wisdom in many ways. But if you view intelligence as just like efficient information processing, ways to navigate the knowledge and quickly retrieve it and apply it in an efficient fashion, uh, almost like an optimization. So like a, in computer science, you use that definition of intelligence. That's where artificial intelligence also comes in, sort of like you optimize. Uh, that definition, of course, misses the mark of what wisdom is about, because you know you can be optimally oriented towards uh, something that's completely biased and useless, and uh, it can be very intelligent, but it can lead to maladaptive uh, consequences, both for you and for the society at large. Uh, so I hope that sort of clarifies a little bit difference. Often when I think about wisdom, I think about ways to navigate complex situations where you don't know what the right or wrong answer is, where you don't have all the parameters uh, uh, um, at your disposal. And consequently, you can't just efficiently optimize towards them because you don't know what those are in the first place. So you kind of need to be more contextual. You need to recognize limits of your knowledge. You need to... Uh, probe whether your information is correct or incorrect. And what's interesting is that intelligent people sometimes do that, but uh, often uh, they are very good at identifying 20 reasons why they're right, another person is wrong, and uh, that can be self-deceiving. They can convince themselves after identifying those 20 reasons that they're actually right, 
even though they may be wrong. It's called confirmation bias. And so people who score high on um, IQ tasks, um, uh, they often are at least as prone to this type of confirmation bias, if not more than those who score lower on IQ tasks. So that's a long-winded answer, but I hope that clarifies the distinction between intelligence, knowledge, and wisdom. Yeah, that yeah, it does. Did. Thank you. Um, I guess as a follow-up to that then, it sounds like there's not a link, but I'm assuming there's not necessarily a correlation between like scoring higher on intelligence tests and I'm not sure what the tests are for wisdom, but I'm assuming there's no sort of like, you know, correlation, a line going across a graph like that. Between intelligence and wisdom? Yes. In the population, there will be a modest positive correlation because obviously you need to have some kind of a facility for processing information in order to be able to navigate and synthesize and discern and like do all this type of judgmental higher order tasks that uh, you would associate with a wiser judgment. But it's not a big huh. correlation. So it's like, uh, you know, and in the normal population, a healthy population uh, who don't have some kind of cognitive impairment, uh, you may not even see much of a correlation. Uh, now, intelligence sometimes, um, it's again, like it's not just one term. Uh, so you often distinguish between so-called crystallized intelligence. So for instance, how good is your vocabulary? How many words do you know? Or what about your general knowledge of the world? Uh, do you know the place that uh, Thomas Jefferson lived at? If you can quickly answer that question, the answer is Monticello, uh, by the way, uh, then uh, you're probably smarter. Like in sort of like this kind of general knowledge uh, type of uh, stuff, you know, who was the uh, president of the Soviet Union, the only president of the Soviet Union? It's like, well, if you know that it was Gorbachev, then you may be a smarter. Uh, but that is very different from the so-called fluid intelligence, uh, which is more about uh, analytical reasoning and efficient processing of information. Uh, sort of like the tasks, uh, the puzzles that you may see on the computer uh, or some people like solving um, uh, where you try to sort of like uh, identify some kind of patterns uh, and match them to other patterns um, uh, based on some kind of abstract rules and do it as quickly and efficiently as possible. That would be a form of fluid intelligence. And it has little to do with this type of vocabulary or general knowledge of the world. So the general knowledge of the world and the vocabulary actually um, improves uh, until uh, you're in your 40s and 50s and um, is sustained uh, because of that. Uh, and, uh, and even in older age, it declines only later in life. Whereas the fluid intelligence, I'm already way over the hill. So you guys are already over the hill. Uh, I think uh, only uh, until you're like early 20s, you're kind of improving this kind of uh, ability to very quickly and efficiently match patterns. Uh, you know, like the best players in computer games and this kind of like shooter games, for instance, uh, or uh, flight simulators, uh, they tend to be younger. Right, and like that, then then your abilities sort of like start to decline, and so there's a different sort of like uh, aging curve, and um, so the uh, first the, the crystallized intelligence that one is more likely to be related with wisdom because it is partially related again with some form of life experiences and uh, just having some kind of background information to navigate the situation. The second one, not so much. Hmm. Oh, okay, well, I have, this is sort of a hypothetical, but I hope it's more of a fun exercise other than the other mm -hmm. ones. I'm thinking, because you said earlier that, you know, it's hard to separate some of these tests in terms of wisdom because you can't control for some variables. 
But if I were to give you, I say, let's say a sample of, I don't know how many you need for a, some significant value, but if I were to give you a population of uh, people who never aged, like they, they lived longer mm -hmm. chronologically, but they were not biologically aging. Okay. I'm just thinking for fun, what sort of tests on wisdom or intelligence might you be interested in performing? Mm -hmm. For wisdom, I would give them the same test they give to anybody. Namely, I would uh, just look at how are they uh, reasoning through complex, ill-defined situations where you don't know all the parameters, you don't know all the answers, you don't know what the other people are thinking who are involved and how willing will they be to consider different perspectives, recognize limits of their knowledge, uh, be open-minded to diverse perspectives and so on. That would be exactly the same task I would give to somebody who is uh, aging that I would not discriminate uh, for, I guess, for intelligence. I'm not sure. I, I don't think you need, you, you need to create tasks differently there. Uh, it's uh, more the awareness that these people are not subject to biological maturation slash aging uh, that you need to be uh, taking into account. Uh, when you're analyzing the data. So any sort of differences you find between, let's say, that unique population and those who do age uh, would not be uh, due to, uh, could be potentially due to aging if they have the same amount of life experience and lived through the same period of time and so on and so forth. So that could be interesting, but I don't think you would be designing the tasks differently. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to compare them. Do you think, I guess, if you were to hypothesize, do you think biological aging itself just that factor alone would have a great enough effect that you'd see there'd be some statistical difference between the two groups uh probably um okay yeah i mean certainly for uh, crystallized intelligence for it's like already talking about memory decay and speed of processing of information uh, uh i would say so Okay, well, I guess maybe that would be a study you can carry out. And I don't know how long it'll take, but hopefully uh, if we are able to live much longer, I can see uh, Grossman eye on a paper on this subject exactly. Well, I'm not sure if I will, I will live that long, but that's a separate story. <laughs> All right. And I have just one more mm -hmm. question on the idea of, of knowledge and wisdom and intelligence. Um, oftentimes people say that, oh, the more intelligent or wisdom or knowledgeable you are, the more miserable you are likely to mm -hmm. be. So if theoretically, again... We are to extend the life by 20, 30, 40, however many years. Do you think more people will be more miserable as age in increases? Well, that's interesting. Uh, so where did you hear that people are more miserable uh, if they are uh, wiser? It's definitely like a common saying from what I've heard. Uh, it's interesting because I don't think that's, uh, I mean, there's no evidence to that. I mean, when uh, what is what is true is that uh, at least according to the evidence uh, that uh, I'm aware of, is that, for instance, intelligent people are not necessarily happier, but they're not necessarily miserable. It's just like there's no relationship between, you know, being, for instance, gifted, uh, super brainy, and uh, your well-being, mm. uh, your subjective sense of happiness in your life or amount of positive emotions. When it comes to wisdom, uh, well, wisdom actually does uh, uh, go hand in hand with positive experiences because if you are more sensitive to others and uh, are more aware of your limitations and more willing to integrate different perspectives together, uh, you're actually more, to some extent, more amicable person. Now, you're not like a saint or anything, uh, but you would be potentially less likely to engage in 
<clears throat> unnecessary conflicts with others, or you would be more willing to resolve those conflicts. And indeed, we have some evidence that uh, sort of like this wise reasoning is related to uh, reduced intergroup conflicts or some of my colleagues, my former student, Justin Brianza, just had a paper on that, uh, reduced political polarization in your attitudes towards other people and willingness to engage with them. So my prior research has shown that. Uh, greater likelihood of uh, recognizing positive emotions uh, in your own life and uh, paying attention to various sorts of emotions and more positive attitudes towards people whom you may have some kind of disagreements with. So those things do suggest that actually those sort of wisdom-related features would be positively related to well-being. So then why is it that uh, we have this stereotype that you have uh, pointed out about that are wise people being miserable? Well, to some extent, uh, this stereotype comes from a reverse direction. Namely, there's this idea that wisdom uh, it's a very Western idea, but I mean, to some extent, it's also present in some uh, South Asian mythology, uh, where uh, we believe that wisdom comes from suffering, and you have to suffer, uh, go through some adversity and overcome this adversity in order to become wiser. You know, we just completed a one-year-long longitudinal study where we tracked people and asked them over the course of a year to report on different adversities in their lives, you know, cancer, uh, loss of a job, interpersonal conflict, divorce, stuff like that. And we found no relationship between the magnitude of adversity or presence of adversity and wisdom, except for one little thing. Uh, if the adversity was kind of uh, self-focused, you were less likely to show wisdom than if the adversity involved other people's, which is other people's health issues versus your own health issues. You'll be more likely to show wisdom when it comes concerns other people's health issues. So... It suggests that this stereotype is probably incorrect, but I mean, of course, we need more work. And uh, at least so far, we don't have evidence that adversity leads to wisdom. And if anything, if you think about it, it shouldn't. Um, there should be a moderating factor. It depends on how you deal with adverse experiences. Uh, and definitely the opposite of that, namely that wise people are more miserable, seems to be incorrect. So I know we're keeping you, Igor, and we don't want to keep you too long. But I have one more small question mm -hmm. sort of related on this idea of, I guess, because you mentioned conflict and decision making sort of within groups. Sure. And I think one thing I was reading once was on this idea of people making rational versus reasonable decisions within groups. Sure. And we've talked about time. I was wondering if the time it takes to make a decision for that individual, if that affects whether they're more rational or reasonable. Oh, it's a fascinating question. I haven't looked at that yet. I do research on sort of distinction between what is rational, what people consider to be rational versus reasonable. Um, yeah, we haven't had a chance to examine that question. Hypothetically, I can imagine, and this is without having any evidence, that uh, uh, rational decision, or when people think of rational decision, they would think of a faster decision than a reasonable decision, because a reasonable decision would be a more deliberative decision. Uh, where you try to weigh in different options without a clear-cut sort of like solution, you would be basically like a dancing around, uh, like uh, in many sort of First Nation cultures uh, here in Canada, uh, we have this type of consensus decisions, right? Where you have to, you don't just like create the top-down heuristic of like this is a decision tree, this is the best solution, this is the le least uh, favorite solution. Okay, we go with the best solution. Discussion over. 
So it's like you have the decision tree. That's a very rational type of thing to do. Like you create a taxonomy of what's the most important thing, and then you quickly solve it and you can apply it to every single situation. So it can be done very fast. Whereas often this kind of collective decisions that are common to uh, a number of First Nation cultures here, uh, you have this kind of like, uh, um, for instance, the Haida in the British Columbia, you have everybody has to come to word. Everybody has to contribute. Everybody has to discuss uh, uh, and uh, say what they think. And you kind of dance around that in the sense that you interpret what they're talking about, uh, often in a narrative form. And that could be closer to a reasonable decision. And actually, in many situations, probably as effective, because if you don't know what the parameters are for your decision, how you're supposed to build a decision tree. But unfortunately, that takes longer. And I think that would be my gut feeling, namely that uh, reasonable decisions would take longer than rational decisions. But I haven't tested that yet. Yeah, I guess it's a future study because possibly, Absolutely. let's say people live a lot longer, right? Then if you have a lot more time, then they, maybe they'll mull things over. And yeah, I guess we'll see. We can test that in the future. That's right. Igor, if there's one thing you want people to take away from today's conversation on our podcast, what would it be? Uh, that wisdom is not just about aging and that it's not just about ex life experiences or it's not just about some kind of particular remarkable people, that it's contextual and that it varies from our typical definition of intelligence. I guess it's not one thing, multiple things. Okay, great. And you had a project called, was it World During COVID, World After COVID? Yeah, about a year ago, I was interested in the question of what, what would leading thinkers around the world envision uh, the world after COVID to look like. And um, right. it, it was both important for me just to document the time lapse, sort of like a moment of how people were thinking during COVID about the world thereafter and their hopes and worries and what kind of wisdom they recommended. So if you're interested in how right or wrong uh, world's leading scientists were in their predictions for the world after COVID, check out worldaftercovid.info. Okay, great. Oh, and what if people are interested in, do you have a personal website or a lab website people can visit if they want to learn more about wisdom or even your podcast? Uh, yeah, for the podcast, uh, just check out onwisdompodcast.com uh, and uh, or Google it. Uh, and uh, yeah, anybody who's interested in uh, research on wisdom, societal change or forecasting, uh, please uh, go to igorgrossman.com. Two S's and two N's Perfect. at the end. So for all of you guys listening, any links that Igor uh, mentioned throughout the podcast will be in the description below. Of course, thank you, Igor, for coming on to I'm Immortal, your source for all things immortal. We really appreciate you taking the time to come speak with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun.